about 10 years ago, it was my first summer being married to my wife, Nancy, and we lived in Odessa, Texas. Now, Odessa is a beautiful place, not necessarily because of the surroundings, uh, but because of the people. Uh, You see, that summer, we needed to earn a little extra income. Uh, Nancy and I had just completed our first semester of seminary together, and we needed income for the next three years of seminary. And so we put out some job feelers, and my wife, being a petroleum engineer, her income's a little bit greater than mine, being a a teacher. Um, So we moved to Odessa, and she worked with Chevron, her old company, and Every morning, she'd get up, and she'd go to the oil field. And every morning, I'd wake up, and uh, I'd eat waffles in the hotel breakfast lobby. Complimentary breakfast, can't pass it up. No, I, I really did eat waffles, but I also took three online seminary classes that year. Uh, and if you've ever been to West Texas, then you know that if you keep driving further west, you get to far west Texas, and you stumble upon mountains, and there's nothing quite like beautiful mountains springing up in a desert. So Nancy and I decided that before the summer was over, we needed to go to uh, the park out in far west Texas and climb the peak. Does anybody know what the tallest mountain in Texas is? It's Guadalupe Peak. Does anybody know how tall Guadalupe Peak is? It's 8,751 feet above sea level. So it's a legitimate mountain. Uh, We decided that uh, this is something we should do together. Nancy had climbed it before. Uh, Her brother had climbed it. Her dad had climbed it. A whole host of Boy Scouts climb it every year. And so we drive out there and we lay all of our gear, that which we'll need to, to climb this peak and I'm not trying to make myself look good here. It's a well-maintained trail, okay, people? You, you walk a, well, a well-maintained trail uh, to the top of this peak. Uh, and we, we laid out all of our gear uh, on the floor to determine what we actually needed to make it to the top. And we divided up um, our gear and we started to walk to the top of the peak. And let me tell you, at first I felt great. I was like, yeah, I'm in good shape. I can eat waffles. I can, I can maybe do a few little leg exercises before this hike, and I'm going to make it to the top, no problem. But what ended up happening was about 30 minutes into the hike, I started to get really tired. This trail was a lot steeper than I thought it was. My pack was a lot heavier than I thought it was going to be. And so I was taking more and more of these little rest stops. That's what I called them. Just, I need a little breather, hun. Well, these breathers eventually turned into me sitting on my backside, loosening my boots, taking my pack off, and gulping down water. I was beat. So what I'm describing for you here is the situation in my life where my self-assessment, how I viewed myself, what I thought I was capable of, collided with reality. And I got knocked upside the head. My self-assessment was I'm strong enough. I can do this. But there's no way of getting around 
reality. That this is bigger than me. This is harder than I thought it was going to be. Now let's talk for just a minute about how this applies to our Christian life. Our lives as Christ followers. Think of a time in your life where you were in a similar situation. The way you saw yourself or the way you saw the situation was not on the same page with what God was calling you to do. Here's a general example I feel like we can all relate to. Think about your interpersonal relationships. We all enter into relationships, whether it's friends, family, spouses, children, coworkers, church members, thinking, I got this. I can be really good friends with this person. I can serve them well, love them well, honor the Lord. Or at the very least, I won't make a huge mess of it. But it doesn't take long for us to realize that something as simple as a godly relationship is very, very challenging. And we find ourselves coming face to face with the reality that there's a sizable gap between what we are as frail, finite people struggling with the sin within in what God is calling us to do, to display his son, to serve in his kingdom, to glorify his name. Sizable gap between what we are and what God is calling us to do. So what do we do? How do we bridge this gap as Christ followers between what we are and what God is calling us to do? That's what we're going to look at this morning as we dig into Joshua. We're going to be covering portions of three chapters, Joshua 13, 14, 15. Don't worry, we will be bouncing. But in doing this, we are going to look for ourselves in God's word, how we bridge this gap between what we are and what God is calling us to do. And we'll be doing it this way. We're going to look at Joshua. And then we're going to look at the tribes. And finally, we're going to look at Caleb. All three of those are major characters in these three chapters. So open to Joshua chapter 13 and read with me verse 1. Now Joshua was old and advanced in years. And the Lord said to him, you are old and advanced in years. And there remains yet very much land to possess. So at this point, it's believed that Joshua was probably about 100 years old. And we get that because in Joshua 24, he died at 110. So let me ask you this in our room this morning, who might not be 100, but who in your own assessment believe to be old and advanced in years. How do you view yourself in this season? How do you view yourself in regards to God's calling on your life? How do you view your usefulness to God? Do you see yourself like a cut flower 
whose vibrancy in life is slowly fading to gray? Or a great oak whose roots are firmly and deeply tapped into the everlasting source of water, flourishing? Western culture's assessment of the aged no doubt is more like the former, a cut flower whose usefulness is just diminishing. But what's God's assessment on the senior saint, your usefulness in God's kingdom? With this one verse here in chapter 13, he turns common man's reasoning on its head. What we see here is any senior saint like Joshua who is simply willing to serve, simply willing to present himself or herself to the living Lord. There is not just unfinished work, but very much unfinished work in God's kingdom. What does this mean, very much? For Joshua, it meant that finally, Finally, at the end of his life, at the end of his ministry, he was going to really actually do what God had called him to do. To allot the land to the tribes so that God could establish his kingdom of priests in the promised land. To be a holy nation to the surrounding nations. This very much work was not just great in quantity. It was great in significance. Read with me in verse 2 here, where it says, This is the land that yet remains. And then from that point all the way down to verse 6, we see Joshua list out the land that yet remained. It's far south land. It's far north land. It's coastland and its hill country land. It's small pockets that had yet to be cleared out. And looking at verses 6 through 7, we're going to see Joshua, a senior saint, at the peak of his career. This runs very contrary to the way we view the aged, the senior saint. Read with me verses 6 through 7, starting with I myself. I myself, says the Lord, will drive them out from before the people of Israel. Only a lot, Joshua, the land to Israel for an inheritance, as I have commanded you. Now, therefore, divide this land for an inheritance to the nine tribes and half the tribe of Manasseh. Very much land yet remained, very much work yet remained. And finally, finally, Joshua was at a place in his life, he was at the peak of his usefulness to the Lord in doing this great work. For you senior saints in this room, I'd argue the same is true for you, that you are at the peak of your career to serve the Lord. Why? Because you have had enough 
experiences in your life where you've come face to face with the reality that you have nothing in and of yourself to offer, that you're not strong enough, that the only thing truly special about you is what the Lord is doing in and through you. Let me ask you this, senior saints, what are you doing for the Lord, serving his kingdom? What is God calling you to do at the peak of your career as a servant of the Lord? Have you asked him? Hear me, your humility is beautiful. And the church needs your humility now more than ever. So verses 1 here of Joshua being old and verses 6 and 7 discussing what he'd be doing. These are meant to encourage us. Nothing, not our age, nothing can limit the everlasting God using us in serving in his kingdom. So why do we put limits on him? So that's the first point here as we talk about how to bridge this gap between what we are, feeble, finite, struggling with the sin within, and what God is calling us to do, this great and grand work to display his son, to display what it looks like to be a citizen in the kingdom. We do not bridge the gap by thinking too lowly of ourselves or too lowly of God. Let's move to our second focus here, the tribes. So we've just looked at Joshua, now we're going to look at the tribes. And in verses 8 through 13, we're going to see the allotted land here for Manasseh. That's one of the half-tribes for Manasseh on the east side of the Jordan where Moses worked. So read with me verses 8 through 13 of chapter 13. With the other half of the tribe of Manasseh, the Reubenites and the Gadites received their inheritance, which Moses gave them. So this is looking backward. Beyond the Jordan eastward as Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave them. From Aror, which is on the edge of the valley of Arnon, and the city that is in the middle of the valley, and all the tableland of Mediba as far as Debon. And all the cities of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon, as far as the boundary of the Ammonites, and Gilead, and the region of the Geshurites, and Machathites, and all Mount Hermon, and all Bashan to Selica, all the kingdom of Og and Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth and in Edrai. He alone was left of the remnant of the Rephim. These Moses had struck and driven out. Yet the people of Israel did not drive out the Geshurites or the Machathites, but Geshur and Machath dwell in the midst of Israel to this day. So I want to point a couple things out to you in this section dealing with Joshua allotting land, uh, in this looking backward to what Moses had done. The first is Joshua is highlighting previous victories of the Lord through his servant Moses. We see in verse 10, Joshua reference that 
God had, through Moses, defeated Sihon, the king of the Amorites. And in verse 12, we see God's victory through his people over the kingdom of Og in Bashan. These were great kings that Joshua is reminding the tribe the Lord had already vanquished. Why do you suppose he's recounting something that had already happened? As one scholar put it, our faith finds steadfastness today by rehearsing the Lord's past acts of faithfulness. Our faith today finds steadfastness by rehearsing the Lord's past acts of faithfulness. How has God been faithful to you? Write these down. Rehearse them in your mind. Treasure them. Looking backward at God's past faithfulness strengthens us to properly see what might be on our path tomorrow. And the young nation of Israel at this point would need to rehearse God's past acts of faithfulness. There was very much work left to be done. Okay, you're saying, but they had been doing this for a decade at least, going into these major fortified cities, clearing them out. Why at this point did they need to rehearse anything? Didn't they get it? Well, you see what's different now is Joshua was allotting the land for each tribe. And these tribes would go into their allotment of land and it would now be up to them as a tribe to clear out the remaining portions of their land. And they were to do it without the leadership of Joshua. They could no longer depend on the faith of anyone else to do what God was calling them to do. So how did Manasseh do? How did these tribes do? Did they finish the work? Well, look at verse 13 again regarding Manasseh on the east side of the Jordan. Yet the people of Israel did not drive out the Geshurites or the Makathites, but Geshur and Makath dwell in the midst of Israel to this day. Okay, well, what about the other tribes? Well, skip down to chapter 15, verse 63, where we will look at the allotment to the tribe of Judah. 1563, and here's the assessment. But the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah could not drive out. So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. Okay, so we're 0 for 2. All right, what about the half-tribe of Ephraim? Turn over to chapter 16, verse 10. However, they, Ephraim, did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites have lived in the midst of Ephraim to this day, but have been made to do forced labor. Okay, what about the half-tribe of Manasseh on the west side? So we're just dotting along. We're looking at these different tribes. Turn to chapter 17, verse 12. And this is not on the screen. I realize that. 
Yet the people of Manasseh could not take possession of those cities, but the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. What happened? Why couldn't these tribes drive out these remaining wicked kings and their idolatrous kingdoms? Especially considering that we saw in chapter 13, the Lord tell Joshua, I will drive them out. I will drive out these remaining tribes. Only you allot the land. What happened? Well, it seems the tribes thought too highly of themselves and too lowly of God and his kingdom program. Well, what do I mean by that? Where am I getting that? So if you recall last week in chapter 12, Ross discussed this list of 31 kings that Israel with Moses and Joshua had already vanquished. This was a list of great and mighty kings, great and mighty kingdoms that had already been vanquished by God through Israel. So perhaps these tribes now thinking to themselves, we've already vanquished the 31 great kings and great kingdoms. What's left is really just the leftovers. We've got this. We can do this. But what they failed to grasp was all those other victories were a result of the Lord's loyal love fighting on their behalf to display His greatness, His power, to train them to trust Him, to faithfully obey Him, to follow His leading. For the tribes here, not driving out these leftovers is simply a result of pride. They were just proud. This addition of pride, this self-assuredness, what we see is actually a subtraction of the Lord's willingness to fight on behalf of his people. He didn't want to glorify his tribe's strength. He wanted to glorify his strength through the tribe's weakness, through their dependency, So something you would probably have no clue to know about me, but my wife has learned over the years, and actually I've learned about myself over the years, is I tend to be a bit of an overpacker. I I just am. It doesn't matter where we're going. I just like to have my stuff. Well, uh, flashback to our Guadalupe Peak hike here. Uh, If you remember, we had laid everything out on the, on the ground there, and we were dividing up what we actually needed uh, between the two of us so that we could walk this trail to the top and camp overnight near the peak. Well, after we had done that, our packs were pretty manageable weight, but you know what I honestly kept doing? Going back to the pickup truck and grabbing more and more gear that I thought was necessary, that I thought we needed. And I remember Nancy just shaking her head and saying, you don't need that. You don't need that. Oh, yes, I do. I do need that. And the one item that we, we laugh about to this day is, is I grabbed out of my pickup an old army shovel. I'm not kidding. With, with a long wooden handle, solid wooden handle, and, and a metal spade that just kind of collapses on itself. And I strapped that puppy to my bag. And I thought, we need this. We need the shovel. And she's just like, no, you don't. You don't need this shovel. My assessment was, 
I'm strong enough. I'm in shape enough. I can do this. And I need all of this extra gear in order to do it. Despite the fact that if you go to the National Park Service website, it'll tell you this about the hike. The hike to Guadalupe Peak is very strenuous, 8.4-mile round trip with a 3,000-foot elevation gain to the highest point in the state of Texas. And yet here I am adding a shovel to my backpack, thinking very strenuous, not for me. My point is I didn't need the shovel. And in fact, by me adding it, I added unnecessary weight that became one of the major factors why I was struggling to climb to the peak. These tribes in our passages this morning, they needed nothing but the Lord. They needed nothing but the Lord to defeat these remaining kingdoms. Yet they assessed themselves all wrong. They assessed the Lord all wrong. They assessed the situation all wrong. So that's our second point. We don't bridge this gap between what we are, feeble, finite, and what God is calling us to do, to display the character of his son by thinking too highly of ourselves and too lowly of God. So let's move to our third and final point here. We're going to look at Caleb. What we'll see with Caleb is a man like Joshua with a proper view of himself and of the Lord. Read with me in chapter 14, verses 6 through 15. Fourteen verses six through fifteen. Then the people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, in Kadesh Barnea, concerning you and me. I was forty years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought him word again, as it was in my heart. But my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt. Yet I wholly followed the Lord my God. And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as he said these 45 years since the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses, while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now behold, I am this day 85 years old. I am still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then, for war and for going and coming. So now give me this hill country on which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me, and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said. Then Joshua blessed him and gave Hebron to Caleb the son of Jephunneh for an inheritance. Therefore Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb the son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite to this day, because he wholly followed the Lord the God of Israel. Now the name of Hebron formerly was Kirath Arba. Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim, and the land had rest from war. 
So just like we've done henceforth, we're going to, or thus far, we're going to look at a few things here in this passage. First, I want to point out to you in verse 10. Do you see how old Joshua is here? He's 85. He's 85. In what land is he wanting Joshua to give him? Well, verse 12. He's wanting the hill country where the Anakim live in their fortified city. Who are the Anakim? They were giants. Giants living in fortified cities. The same giants in the same fortified cities that 45 years ago had melted the hearts of the other 10 spies and caused them to abandon God and his kingdom program. Where did, where did Caleb's confidence come from to take on this mighty work? Was it in his own strength, which Scripture says in, in verse 11 twice, he was strong, he felt young, he was seasoned through war. No, that's not the source of Caleb's confidence. Scripture tells us in verse 10 where his confidence came from. Excuse me, 12. Read with me the, the last part of verse 12 here. It may be that the Lord will be with me, and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said. What we see with Caleb is a picture of a willing servant who is humble and who puts his confidence in the presence and in the promises of the Lord. He understood and relied on the Lord to bridge the gap between what he was, mere flesh and bones, and what God was calling him to do clear out this land with giants. I want to break verse 12 down just a little bit. This phrase, it may be that the Lord will be with me, is an expression of total humility. He recognizes that God is sovereign. It may be that the Lord is with me, but it's also total confidence in the sovereignty of God. And the idea behind the Lord being with him, this is a reference to the presence of God. The very presence of God with Caleb was his confidence. And finally, and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said, that is him standing on the sureness of the promises of God. God said this to the tribes through a promise. Was Caleb successful? Did this strategy of how to bridge this chasm between what he was and what God was calling him to do, was it successful? Well, yes. Verse 15, the very last sentence in verse 15 of chapter 14, and the land had rest from war. This is a Hebrew expression for victory. Caleb was victorious. God had granted him victory. So how do we bridge this gap between, I'm frail, 
and what God is calling us to do. Make his name great. And in whatever situation you are finding yourself in today, like Caleb, we view ourselves with humility, a proper humility. And we view the Lord for who he is, true to his promises, who fights on our behalf, who's present with us. Our confidence is in the Lord's presence and his promises. For you this morning, I, I don't know exactly what God's spirit is calling you to do, but you do. You know what God is calling you to do. And it might be something great. It could be to reconcile with someone. It could be to disciple someone, to serve somewhere. But it's great. It's a great work. And you might be thinking to yourself, yeah, pastor, I hear what you're saying. Put, put our confidence in the, the presence and promises of God. It's a sure thing. But I don't really believe that. How do I develop that? How do I get to a place in my life where I can do that? Where I can follow the Lord's leading because I'm standing on his presence, his promises. Well, what's the scripture tell us here? What did Caleb do? Surely Caleb wasn't born with this faith to follow God into these trials. What did Caleb do? In verses 8, 9, and 14... We see this phrase repeated three times about Caleb. Verse 8, he says, Yet I wholly followed the Lord my God. Verse 9, Because you have wholly followed the Lord your God, my God. In verse 14, Because he wholly followed the Lord, the God of Israel. Other translations talk about this concept of wholly following the Lord as wholeheartedly following the Lord or being a loyal follower of the Lord. Okay, but what does that mean? Well, I think we get it more than we realize. Let me frame it for you this way. I'm a loyal follower of the Dallas Cowboys. I know, I know. But that's the point. I watch their games year after year, season after season, with this wishy-washy hope that maybe, maybe this year will be the year. And all these years of being a loyal follower of the Dallas Cowboys, do you know what I've learned? To expect disappointment. To expect it. My confidence in them, the more I follow them, lessens each and every year. But this is not so as we follow the Lord. And what I mean by following the Lord is developing your personal relationship with Him. Just meeting with Him through prayer, through the word, through gathering to worship, just as we loyally follow all kinds of things, all kinds of people. We know about them. We know what to expect from them. The Lord is personal. 
We can know about him, and he is a sure thing. His faithfulness is true year after year, season after season. We can stand on the sureness of his presence and his promises. And you seasoned saints know that better than any of us. It's to seek him. It's to know him intimately. And as we do this, as we take these baby steps, like Caleb, Caleb, no doubt, his life was filled with these baby steps before he was able to take these great big steps of faith. As we do this, the Lord will prove himself to be faithful. So in closing, yes, I did make it to the top of Guadalupe Peak. But it was only because I relented to my wife who got tired of waiting on me and I let her carry my backpack. (laughs) Not the whole time, but definitely long stretches. If, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've put your trust in him alone for the forgiveness of your sins, you have all that you need to bridge the gap between what we are and what we're called to do because he is the bridge for everything regarding us and God. Christ is the bridge And so my challenge to all of us this morning, myself included, is let us wholeheartedly follow after the Lord, encouraging one another another all the more to put your humble confidence in the presence of God, in the promises of God, because he is faithful. Let's pray. Father, we come to you as your children made of but dust. And yet you've given us this immense and great calling to image your son, to reflect your glory, to showcase to the world who you are. And this is a great task. I pray, God, for us now that we would grow in our ability to trust you to be men and women, boys and girls who follow after you wholeheartedly knowing that we have all that we need. We have Christ in order to accomplish all that you've laid out for us to do. And may we grow closer in our love for you as we do this great and awesome work. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, rise to your feet as we dismiss with the benediction. Praise God for the rain. We can always use it. (laughs) Go under the shield of our almighty God who is with us and whose great promises we can build our lives upon. Go in the power of the Spirit displaying the beauty and the wonder of who the Son is. Amen.